This is Our American Stories. And up next, the tale of a disaster in American history, one of epic proportions. And Jesse Edwards brings us the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Molasses isn't just used for grandma's cookies or for grandpa's rum. It's also used for weapons, high explosives, and munitions when it's refined to industrial grade alcohol. And the United States Industrial Company during World War I saw that this was a profitable market. Their subsidiary, the Purity Distilling Company, wanted to get in on the action. In the north end of Boston, Arthur Gell, treasurer of the Purity Distilling Company, realizes that he has to build a tank. You see, he's purchased a boatload of molasses that's heading north from the Caribbean, and he's got no place to put it. He commissions the Hammond Iron Works Company, and he doesn't pull a building permit. He only pulls a permit for the foundation. Therefore, he's not scrutinized by any inspectors. So the Hammond Ironworks puts together 18 huge steel plates with rivets, and they build this magnificent tank. It's 58 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, a 240-foot circumference, and they're going to fill it with molasses. But there's only one problem. You see, the ship is inbound, and if they don't have that tank built, the ship will dump the molasses that they paid for into the Boston Harbor. Now, December of 1915 was a tough year weather-wise in Boston. With 20 inches of snow and some casualties on the construction site, the deadline was growing closer and closer. Finally, as the ship is pulling into the harbor, the tank is complete. Arthur cuts some corners. Instead of filling the tank to the top with water to test the structural integrity, he decides to fill it only six inches high. Arthur declares it sturdy, sound, and ready to use. Bring us the molasses. So they filled the tank up, and everything seemed fine, until about a year later. Isaac Gonzalez, a technician, noticed that the molasses seemed to be congealing around the riveted joints and seeping from the seams rolling down the side of the tank. He noticed children going to the base of the tank to put molasses on their fingers and putting it in their mouths. They were getting it all over their clothes. Well, he brought this to Arthur Gell's attention. Arthur said, Well, never mind. We'll just repaint the tank gray. And that's exactly what they did. They painted the tank gray to cover up the molasses stains. Another technician soon noticed that when he leaned against the tank he noticed this low rumbling noise that sounded like the growl of an angry animal. Another leaning against the tank swears that he could hear a heartbeat and that the tank was flexing in and out. Something was wrong. This wasn't molasses fermenting. There was bubbling inside, but this was an ominous sign that something was wrong with the integrity of the tank. 1919. The Molero is offloading nearly 2 million gallons of molasses into the tank at 529 Commercial Street. On January 12th, the temperatures are freezing, near zero. The following day on the 13th, 
they swing 35 degrees into the low 40s. By January 15th, it's a beautiful day in Boston. The sun is out and it's nearing lunchtime. All around 529 Commercial Street is bustling. It's Boston's North End. Mrs. Clority is out hanging her wash on the line. Her cat, Peter, sits on the doorstep. Mrs. O'Brien is planting flowers. Little Maria D'Estacio is near the train tracks, collecting free firewood. And then, suddenly, a low rumble shook the ground. It got louder and louder. In the freight yard, people looked at each other, mouths agape. And suddenly, the ripping, tearing, and machine gun sound of steel bolts being stripped. Something is happening to the tank. There's a booming roar. And a 40-foot wave of molasses is unleashed. Men, women, and children in the streets had no chance to react. It crushes freight cars like toys, topples buildings. Anyone caught in the path of this wave was devoured. Then the noise and the rumbling stopped. There was a thick pool of molasses spread over where 529 Commercial Street used to be. By sundown, 15 bodies are recovered. Six more the following morning. 150 people would be injured. Later, there are lawsuits. 3,000 witnesses come forward. And the lawyers tried to deflect the blame from the United States Industrial Alcohol Company and Purity Distilling. It wasn't the infrastructure of the tank, it was anarchists. They planted a bomb. And that was enough to get them off the hook for the Great Molasses Disaster. Legend has it that on hot summer days in Boston, you can still smell that bittersweet molasses scent that harkens back to the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. Blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed With blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread My grandpa's older than the old gray mare he sits a-rockin' in his rockin' chair But now he's got a smile that he can't lose Grandma's sittin' in baby's shoes From eatin' blackstrap molasses and the Ouija bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well-fed I gave up cherry pie and T-bone steak Chicken fricassee and ice cream cake I don't need vitamins or pills at all I even mix it with my hat of call I'm eating blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed my nerves were jumpy and I'd walk the floor I never got to sleep till after four But since I'm eating right I feel okay I'm sleeping every night and half
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about music and stories of songs here on this show. And here's Greg Hengler with the stories of three Beatles songs. The identity of the true fifth Beatle has been hotly debated for half a century. But the strongest case can be made for George Martin. The band's trusted and loyal producer, Martin served as expert, mad scientist, friend, and father figure throughout the band's studio life. He shaped their songs in ways that are seldom appreciated, but impossible to forget. Here's the Beatles live at the Cavern Club in 1962 and George Martin. We proudly present the Beatles! I didn't realize when I signed the Beatles that they'd already been to every record company in the country and they'd been turned down by every record company in the country. Here's Ringo Starr. When we first met George, we loved him because he took a chance on us. No one else would take a chance with a name like that. You come from Liverpool, not a chance in hell. I think it was really a gut feeling I had about them. I think it was their charisma. When I first met them, the Beatles knew nothing about a recording studio. Their experience had been performing in front of people at the Cavern and in Hamburg and that kind of thing. Here's John Lennon. George had done uh, no rock and roll when we met him and we'd never been in a studio, so we did a lot of learning together. I think the Beatles would have made it as great musicians, whether I was there or not. I think the fact that I was there helped out. I think we probably got there more quickly. Here's music producers Nigel Godrich, Tony Visconti and Rick Rubin. What happened with George Martin's work with the Beatles is that he added himself into the picture. He was an arranger, he was a musician. He had some technical knowledge that he could use to augment what they were doing and took control of the overall sonic picture. I kept seeing George Martin's name on the records. And then when I saw a picture of him, I thought, my God, he's about twice their age, you know. He looked like he was a, a director in a bank. You know, he had a suit and tie all the time. His hair was swept back. It was like, wow, these people work together. That's, that's crazy. He was older and wiser, and he brought a deep musicality. They had it intuitively, and he had it intellectually. So he could help them execute ideas that uh, a less skilled producer could not, could not do. It wasn't until a couple of years later that they started doing more sophisticated songwriting that I had solo group most touching material. It'll be an F for you. Yesterday. I'm in G, but it'll be an F. It goes... E minor to A seventh to D minor. Ready? When Paul first wrote yesterday, he came to me and said, have you heard this one before? Because I dreamt about it last night, and I'm sure in my subconscious I'm pinching it from someone. I said, no, I'm sure it's an original piece of music. Stick to it. It's great. Okay, man. 
yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay He said, what do you think then? I said, well, there's nothing we can do to put on top of this that's going to make it more beautiful, except perhaps some strings. Here's Giles Martin. With my dad being the posh bloke in the studios, the classically trained musician, there was an initial reluctance from Paul to have a string quartet on yesterday. Here's Paul McCartney. I was always frightened of classical music, and I never wanted to listen to it because it was Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and sort of big words like that, and Schoenberg. You know, you know I always thought, you know, it's high class, that. It's very highbrow. I was rehearsing musicians when he walked into the studio, and he saw the score that I'd written, and he came up to me and said, what's this? I said, it's all the music that the musicians are playing. He said, you haven't got my name on it. I said, I'm sorry, here's a pencil, put your name on it. So I wrote on it, yesterday, by Paul McCartney, John Lennon. Looked at me, George Martin Esquire, and then giggled and put down, and Mozart. Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play. Now I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Yesterday showed Paul how a string quartet could be quite effective on a really good song. And then he came to me with Eleanor Rigby, which cried out for strings. Not the smooth legato stuff of yesterday, but something was very biting, very rhythmic, very edgy. He suggested to me the stuff that Bernard Herrmann had been writing for Psycho, for example. Elna Rigby is the first time that the Beatles weren't playing any instruments on one of their records. It is just a string octet. The octet was recorded into four track. On track one here, we have the first violins. And here are the second violins. You can hear bleed because they're all in the same room together. Oh my gosh. I played that over and over and over and over again. It was just, just so smart. George Martin obviously knew this stuff and he knew how to put it on a Beatles record. That's, that's the trick. For the first time, you're hearing a string octet and you're tapping your foot. You know, until then, I thought, I can be a rock star. I want to be a rock star. I want to be on stage. I want to have the girls screaming at me. I want all that stuff. I want a limo, everything. But now I wanted to be George Martin. That was more important, to be in the studio, to do that kind of stuff, to be able to experiment that way and to make great works of art that only exist on tape. That's very important, you know, it's a very different art from performing live. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be George Martin. When I walked into Abbey Road Studios for the first time in 1950, I was astonished at how primitive it was. 
They were still recording on discs that were cut by a lathe. From 1950 on, I just worked away, and I had various ideas. I was experimenting with the newfangled tape, and I was able to learn what you could do to manipulate sound. You can cut, you can edit, obviously, you can slow down or speed up your, your tape, you can put in backwards type. And this is the kind of thing you can do on recording, which you obviously couldn't possibly do it live, because it is, in fact, making up music as you go along. Big one, uh, take six. How could I dance? She'll, she won't dance. I'll never dance. When I first met the Beatles, I had so little time with them in the studio, because they were incredibly busy all the time. I would have maybe a day and a half here and a couple of days there. As a result of that, the songs that they produced, which were marvelous, were still fairly basic. The first album only took us 12 hours. I mean, we all knew those songs so well because that was our live show. We were just in there doing the, the gig, really. So Here's music producer Brian Eno. The old approach was that the band rehearsed, went into the studio, stood in front of some microphones and played them. And the job of the producer was maybe to mix them well or put a bit of reverb or echo on them. But essentially, the music wasn't transformed. The Beatles were over that phase by about 1966. With the help of George Martin, they were starting to make music that you couldn't actually play. It couldn't exist outside of a recording studio. It's very difficult to imagine what the Beatles would have sounded like without George Martin. And when we come back, more of this riveting story. If you love music, you're going to want to hear more. George Martin's story, in a way, a producing industries, modern producer story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We return to this fantastic storytelling about the fifth Beatle, and most people think the crucial Beatle, without whom the Beatles might not have been the same. And Martin is a humble man, but when you hear Rick Rubin talk about, and Rick Rubin may be one of the great American record producers, talk so glowingly about George Martin, believe Rubin. And let's return now to Greg Hengler's story, the rest of this story. When multi-track recording became multi-multi-track recording, more than any other, producer George Martin used this new technology to transform the Beatles. Here's music historian Chuck Granada. What's wonderful about this moment in time is that four-track recording opened up the possibilities to use the studio in the creative palette. So the Beatles 
transition from a garage band group that's standing around the mic, playing and singing, please, please me, and I saw her standing there, into a decisive recording group. start to use technology to create sounds and sonic textures that had never been heard in rock music. The Beatles revolutionized the way that people worked in studios, you know, on rain. It's the first time there's anything backwards on a record, and you could say that, like, from that moment on, it's like all the, the rule books out the window, because you're no longer trying to represent something as it was. You're, you're trying to break it, break your perception of this band, you know, there's this band playing in a room. Here's Ringo Starr. It's more fun in the record if there's a few sounds that you don't really know what they are and really they're just instruments, only something happens on here, you know, I couldn't tell you what because we have a special man who sits here and goes like this and the guitar turns into a piano or something, you know. And then you may say, why don't you use a piano? Because the piano sounds like a guitar. Here's John Lennon. We were all on this ship in the 60s, our generation. We were part of it, and uh, we went somewhere. Here's George Harrison. There was a great upsurge of energy and consciousness. And so there was a lot of excitement on the street. There was a lot of people who were all trying to go on the same trip together. Here's Beatles biographer, Bob Spitz and music producer, Don was. On Revolver, the Beatles wanted to make the music that was going on in their heads. The first song they worked on was a song of John's. It had the mysterious title, Mark One, which of course becomes Tomorrow Never Knows. That's me and my Tibetan Book of the Dead period. I gave it a throwaway title because I was a bit self-conscious about the lyrics of Tomorrow Never Knows, so I took one of Ringo's malapropisms which was like Hard Day's Night. Tomorrow Never Knows, that's a song that pretty vividly depicts what you're hearing in your head when you consume some psychedelics. The Beatles laid that out for everybody to hear. Here's George Martin. Tomorrow Never Knows was a very weird song. The tune had virtually no harmonies. It was based on a continuous drone of sound. Here's George Martin's son, Giles. Tomorrow Never Knows started with a backing track recorded here at Abbey Road Studios. That's Paul on bass and Ringo on drums creating a sort of loopy, mesmeric effect. To this, John added his vocal with George playing tambora. Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. Late in the song, 
John's voice gets very unusual sounding, especially at the time it was. John wanted to sound like the Dalai Lama chanting from the top of a mountain. And he suggested that the way that they record that would be to put him in a harness, to hoist him high above the studio, give him a shove, and he'd, he'd sing. Every time he came around, the mic would capture a few beats of it. Here's Tom Petty. Which wasn't the most practical idea. But the engineer, Jeff Emmerich, had the great idea of plugging it into a revolving speaker called Leslie. So when it goes fast, it creates one sound, and when it slows down, it creates another. That you may see the meaning of within. In the early part of the song, John's voice is pretty straightforward. Then, after about one and a half minutes, the Leslie Speaker effect kicks in. Beatles always look for other sounds in their records, and they all had tape machines which they used for recording demos. And they found that by making tape loops, they could create sounds that people had never heard before. One of the most recognizable loops on Tomorrow Never Knows is the sound of what well, sounds like seagulls squawking. It's actually the sound of, uh, I think, Paul laughing um, and speeding himself up, which is this. Another loop is just made up of guitars being recorded over and over again, again sped up and slowed down, turned backwards, and they sound like trumpets. And then, early days of sampling, Paul actually recorded um, an orchestra off a vinyl record and created a chord here. I had a bit of a problem. How were we going to use the collection of sounds? I devised a way of playing five loops at the same time. And if you brought up the faders, it was like bringing up an organ stop. Each one had a different tape loop playing all the time. So you could make your sounds as you wish. And these tape loops were running and running and running. And the Beatles and my dad and Jeff Emmerich performed on the desk. Pushing up faders at the right time in order to create the instrument sounds they wanted for the mix. So the actual mix of Tomorrow Never Knows is a performance. It can't be recreated. Here's music writer Warren Zanes. If you look at everything that's happening in that recording, it's like a prophecy of pop music in one song. With the sampling and the loops, there's so much happening there that will be active for the next four or five decades. Here's Rick Rubin. You can look at hip hop and using samples or scratching in music. The Beatles were doing that and Tomorrow Never Knows. That song makes you rethink what music is. It's that profound. Here's music 
music producer, Tom Visconti. This was the dawn of creating a new kind of magic. This was really fantasy stuff. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. George Martin, the fifth Beatle. By the way, we have an hour on his life. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look up George Martin. This is Lee Habib, the story of a few songs, the story of one of the world's greatest record producers, the fifth Beatle, George Martin. This is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything and all walks of American life. And this story is the story of a comedian, and we've told a few before. Stephen Wright is most famous for his slow, deadpan one-liners. Born and raised in Massachusetts, he cites comic George Carlin as his main influence. His 1985 comedy album, I Have a Pony, was recorded at Wolfgang's in San Francisco and Park West in Chicago. Thanks. I used to be a parking attendant in Boston at Logan Airport. I parked jets. They let me go, though, because I kept locking the keys in them. One day I was on an 86-foot stepladder trying to get in the window with a coat hanger. <laughs> I was arrested today for scalping low numbers at the deli. <laughs> Sold a number three for 28 bucks. <laughs> I was once walking through the forest alone and a tree fell right in front of me and I didn't hear it. I used to be a narrator for bad mimes. I live in a house that's on the median strip of a highway. Very nice grassy area, I like it. The only thing I don't like about it is when I leave my driveway, I have to be going 60 miles an hour. <laughs> I have a microwave fireplace. I can lay down in front of the fire for the evening in eight minutes. Well, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Sometimes you can't hear me, it's because sometimes I'm in parentheses. Are there any questions? I'm feeling kind of hyper. 
About four years ago, I was... No, it was yesterday. <laughs> I went to the hardware store and bought some used paint. It was in the shape of a house. I also bought some batteries, but they weren't included. buy them again. I had trouble going home from there because I had parked my car in a tow-away zone when I came back the entire area was gone. One time the police stopped me for speeding and they said, don't you know the speed limit is 55 miles an hour? I said, yeah, I know, but I wasn't going to be out that long. Before we get back to this legendary comedy routine, let's hear from Stephen about his writing style. The audience doesn't care about style or anything. They just care whether it's funny. Because I was, you know, I, I had more normalish material. 80% of it was like what I'm known now. But even within that, they would, if they would laugh at some of it and wouldn't laugh at other things. So they, it wasn't how I was doing it. It was the actual piece of material. And I, I just thought abstractly, that's just how I wrote. I didn't think a, a plan. I mean, that that type of material was just funny to me. I didn't think about how I talked. I didn't think about how I looked. I didn't think about anything. All I thought about was material. So then when I went on stage, I was scared because public speaking, I was so nervous and I had an extra blank face because I was afraid and I was trying to say the joke the right way and trying to think of what is the next joke. It's very serious to communicate stuff to the audience and then that just like went together kind of meshed like just by accident. Wright knew from a young age that he wanted to be a stand-up comedian when he would often dream about performing on The Tonight Show. With Johnny Carson. Well, I started watching it. I was like 14 years old. I was watching it every night. And my fantasy became to, to go on that when I was like 17. It was like, that would be, you know how a kid wants to be a baseball player or an astronaut or something? I wanted to, that was my dream, not knowing that it would ever happen or anything. So then I'm in the club and stuff, and a guy from The Tonight Show saw me in Cambridge, Peter LaSalle. I was doing it three years, and he saw me in the club, and then three weeks later I was on the show. So I'm 26, and I'm there. It was totally surrealistic. He was really nice. He talked to me before I went on. He was very, you know, I, he could have been saying, we're going to ax murder you, and we're going to put your body in different states after the show. And I would have said, yes, that's, that's fine. That's fantastic. And so... You know, that's still a highlight of my entire career. I've done stuff after that, but that's my favorite thing ever. Now let's go back to Stephen Wright's first comedy album, I Have a Pony. I went to court for a parking ticket. I pleaded insanity. (laughs) I said, Your Honor, why would anyone in their right mind park in the passing lane? Then I asked him if he knew what time it is, and he told me, and I said, no further questions. (laughs) 
I'm going to court next week. I've been selected for jury duty. It's kind of an insane case. 6,000 ants dressed up as rice and robbed the Chinese restaurant. I don't think they did it. I know a few of them, and they wouldn't do anything like that. Years ago, I worked in a natural organic health food store in Seattle, Washington. One day, a man walked in and he said, if I melt dry ice, can I swim without getting wet? <laughs> Two days later, I was fired for eating cotton candy and drinking straight Bosco on the job. I figured I'd leave the area because I had no ties there anyway except for this girl I was seeing. We had conflicting attitudes. I really wasn't into meditation. She really wasn't into being alive. <laughs> I told her I knew when I was going to die because my birth certificate has an expiration date on it. photograph on my license taken out of focus on purpose. So when the police do stop me, they go, here, you can go. One night I stayed up all night playing poker with tarot cards. I got a full house and four people died. telescope on the people on my door so I can see who's at the door for 200 miles. <laughs> Who is it? Who is it going to be when you get here? I got an answering machine for my phone now when I'm not home and someone calls me up, they hear a recording of a busy signal. My husband's supposed to get seven years bad luck, but my lawyer thinks he can get me five. <laughs> I like to skate on the other side of the ice. I like to reminisce with people I don't know. Granted, it takes longer. I like to fill my tub up with water, then turn the shower on and act like I'm in a submarine that's been hit. And I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day, because that means it's going to be up all night. And that's the work of Stephen Wright. We celebrate his work, his life here on Our American Stories. We've also done the same for Steve Martin, Don Rickles, Cal Burnett, Lucille Ball, Mitch Hedberg, and Joan Rivers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org 
Listen to what we did with all of them. You'll hear some of their routines. You'll hear from them personally about how they do what they do. Stephen Wright, his material, his story here on Our American Stories. to Jimi Hendrix Crosstown Traffic. And so many of you listening to our American stories right now, well, you may be stuck in traffic. And that's why we're here. Make it a little less painful. And it takes the average worker 26 minutes to travel to work, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. And that's the longest it's been since the census began tracking that number back in 1980. Back then, the typical commute was only 21 minutes. The average American commute has gotten nearly 20% longer since then. But people living in Los Angeles, well, they have it the worst. They spend an average of 53.68 minutes stuck in their cars every day. Then in July of 2017, Los Angeles imposed a road diet in the quiet beach community of Playa del Rey, replacing car lanes with bike lanes and parking spaces. The roads were suddenly jammed with traffic. Alexis Garcia at Reason.com brings us this report. If you mess with traffic, you have messed with the DNA of Southern California. I just created gridlock through our town pretty much all hours of the day. It all comes from the same agenda. Get you out of your car. We're in Playa del Rey at the shack, the site of a lot of angry people who live in the neighborhood, upset over the stupid... I even hate this phrase, road diet. Here in this quiet beach community just outside Los Angeles, residents went to war with the city back in July over traffic. It all started when the Los Angeles City Council imposed what it calls a road diet, meaning lanes of traffic were removed in favor of building new bike lanes and adding space for parking. Some locals applauded the changes, I was really pleased to hear that they would be slowing down the traffic through here. But commuters were furious. We only have three roads that connect us from the South Bay to the West Side. So when the city came in, they halved the capacity of two of these roads. Uh, It really just created havoc for us. John Russo is a local resident who co-founded Keep LA Moving, a community coalition that's fighting back against the city's unilateral decision to reconfigure the streets in a way that's choking the flow of traffic. This was basically done 
uh, without any community input. Like most of Playa del Rey didn't know this was happening. Uh, it created just huge backup, huge gridlock in the mornings. Like what was a 10 minute drive was turned into a half an hour. So it literally crushed our local businesses. Uh, there was a group of 62 businesses that were surveyed and across the board business was down from to the restaurants to the coffee shop. I mean, even like people you wouldn't expect like the dentist, the dentist lost customers. It's part of a strategy known as Vision Zero, in which the city aims to eliminate all traffic-related fatalities by 2025. The thinking is that eliminating car lanes will slow traffic, meaning fewer accidents. The goal is also to incentivize more commuters to bike to work. In order to achieve zero deaths, public officials have been doing some odd things. Baruch Feigenbaum is the Assistant Director of Transportation Policy at the Reason Foundation. Road diets are used as what I would call solutionism, whereas anywhere there is a safety issue, we're going to put in a road diet and uh, it's going to solve the problem. It's not really based on science and it's not really based on empirical findings. So after the road diets were put in, we actually saw traffic accidents go through the roof. We had an average of 11.6 accidents per year on these roads in Playa del Rey. Uh, we've gone. We've had 52 accidents in the last four months, so we're over 400% of the yearly average in just four months. Emergency vehicles couldn't get into town. I mean, we have video of ambulances out there on Culver, sirens blazing, just sitting in traffic because no one can pull over anymore. There's no place for the people, the cars to go to let the response vehicles through. According to 2013 census data, just over 1% of Los Angeles's commuters bike to work. 67% of commuters drive you're taking something from a whole bunch of people just to benefit a few people. That's not a good cost-benefit analysis. What better way to force people out of their cars except make traffic so unbearable you don't want to sit in your car anymore? City planners also hope to incentivize residents to move closer to their jobs, or if they do have to commute, to ride the city's public transit system. Los Angeles has the third largest transit network in the country, yet only 10% of commuters use it to get to work. In Los Angeles, a majority of the folks simply cannot get from their home to their job in a short period of time using transit, and it's not an option. And so trying to force people into one type of behavior uh, doesn't tend to work, and it's why even in Los Angeles, the vast majority of people are still commuting by automobile. In October, the Los Angeles City Council reversed itself in Playa del Rey after community members filed two lawsuits against the city and launched a recall election of local councilman Mike Bonin, who had backed the plan. But the city is still planning to implement over 40 road diet projects in other areas of Los Angeles. And Chicago, Minneapolis, New York, and Atlanta are pursuing similar policies. In the 1960s, we were building interstate highways, freeways through downtown areas, which was definitely the wrong approach. Nobody is suggesting we go back to that. But now we seem to be on the total opposite end of the pendulum, where we don't want to build any roads at all. We just want to build bike paths. We want to narrow lanes. We're saying that transit is going to solve everybody's needs. Neither extreme is what we need to do. I just think this is completely wrong. It's not about cyclists versus drivers. These are all of our roads, and they should be safe for all users. Uh, and the road diet didn't make our roads safer, and they're not making it better for the cyclists. And thanks for that report, and that's Alexis Garcia at Reason.com. And by the way, there was a key line in that, forcing people into one kind of behavior. And it's not often that we get into the world of public policy, but when we do... It's stories like this, where a small group starts to dictate how a large group lives because they just feel like it. They don't like cars, or they don't like this or that about the way you're living. And in this great country, we believe that, well, let Berkeley be Berkeley, let Birmingham be Birmingham. There are so many different ways to live, and let the people choose, not some smarty pants sitting in a city council. This is Our American Stories. 
road diets. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we bring you stories of all kinds here sports, music, movies, history, everything and anything in between. And today, we have a story that touches on one of the most important Supreme Court decisions of 2018. But I promise there's no legal mumbo jumbo here. It's really the story of one man in New Jersey and his colleagues and their struggle against union higher ups who don't seem to care all that much about taking care of union members. Here's Stan with the story of Michael Thuleen. Michael was brought up in a way that's practically an inkblot test. Depending on who's listening, folks will either want to crown his mom and dad parents of the year or build a time machine and call Child Protective Services. It all starts off normally enough. I grew up in New Jersey on the Jersey Shore. My father owned his own uh, construction and development company for many years. My mother's been a registered nurse in a community hospital that we have here for many, many years. My family has always kind of been active socially as far as my father was involved in politics in our town. I got to uh, get a taste of that at a very young age and see what can happen and what went down. Um, my mother herself being involved in the PTA and Boy Scouts and... Uh, helping find things for us to do, coaching, that type of stuff, working with what well, my parents would do. So grew up in that atmosphere, a very supportive family, a very socially active family, helping our neighbors and helping everybody else, and then working ourselves. So my first job was literally throwing uh, garbage out of uh, new construction into dumpsters. And then from there, I worked my way up to uh, pretty much knowing every trade out there construction-wise due to the fact that I worked for um, My father had a construction company building everything, so I got to learn how to build a little bit of everything. That kind of sounds like he worked at construction sites for a little spending money during high school, right? Well, not quite. Well, it wasn't legitimately on the books. It was about seven years old, so he paid me in cash. I think it was like $5 an hour or something like that. The biggest thing was I've always been a rambunctious person. I don't sit around and watch TV a lot. So the same thing as a kid. So my mother was like, take this kid out of the house in the summertime <laughs> and figure out a way to tire him out. <laughs> so I went and I did a good job. And I probably, somebody, either my father, my, not my father probably, but my mother, somebody's like, oh, you did a good job. You cleaned out a whole house today. And the old man gave me any money for that. And I go back, hey, give me any money for this. I ended up putting money in my savings account as a kid. So. Mom found a great way to burn off some of Michael's energy. Dad got to spend quality time teaching and working with his son. 
and of course Michael had a blast and made a few bucks along the way. This worked out great for everybody, except maybe the folks who had to do a couple of double takes when seeing young Michael at work. You know the big Caterpillar, um, bulldozers, bucket lifts, that type of stuff? So being the kid, but wanting to check everything out, you was always playing them. My father, being the guy running the site, he, would, he taught me how to do some of the stuff. My grandfather was a, a, an electrical engineer, but he was a big on regular mechanical engineering too. So he taught me how to teach drive tractors. My dad showed me how to drive those huge cat machines. So I'd be driving a cat machine as like a nine, 10 year old down the, down the street uh, on job sites while everybody's doing their stuff. And you have all their guys with the cars on the side of the street. And you know, they don't think twice. And then all of a sudden they go like, that kid could barely see over the steering wheel. So they'll come run out and wigging out. So I used to like jerk the wheel a little bit. Oh, I'm going to hit your car, you know, type of thing. So the immediate response of, oh my God, this kid doesn't know what he's doing and ended up doing the job just as well as anybody else. Next time anybody asks what people did for fun before smartphones, tell them about Michael. But as entertaining and educational as all of this was, construction remained a cyclical business and had big ups and downs, massive market swings that Michael's dad could not control. Yeah, um, around 92 to 94, there was a major downturn in construction in New Jersey. And uh, his last two big projects, he uh, ended up closing out the business because low sales and there was nobody really lending at that time for construction projects anymore. So it was a downturn until, I don't know, it was like six years later that construction started picking up again in New Jersey. I was... About 11 years old when it started on the downturn, and I think I was about 14 when he was totally shuttered his company. And uh, it's hard. Um, my dad was doing very well. He had plenty of money in the bank, had a vacation house, had a boat. Everyone you know, did not want for anything, which was nice. And then you uh, learned how to uh, pair back. What do we need? Do you need this? Do you need these? Do you need five pairs of shoes for school or do you need one pair of shoes for school? Do we, you know, we don't have a vacation house to go to anymore. No, there's no more boat. We're just going to go to the beach and hang out on the vacation, you know, three blocks from our house. So you learn how to, you know, be frugal and go from a life of, it wasn't extreme, ex, you know, excess or anything, but I, it was very well lived <laughs> and it was nice to have all these luxuries to, all right, make decisions when we want to buy things or do things. For my parents, it was very hard. They ended up about 12 to 13 years later. That was still a major part. They ended up getting divorced. And my mother held that whole process of them losing the company and things going bad against him until that day. Michael and his parents are all doing well today, but that certainly was a rough patch back in the 90s. One that meant young Michael would not go straight into the family construction business full time. Instead, he went to college and earned a degree in economics. With that, he got into the red-hot mortgage and banking industry. As you might expect, he excelled at the work and quickly earned the trust of his colleagues and customers. But Michael did something a little bit unusual in his free time. He kept working construction and earned a building inspector's license. Why in the world did he do that? Well, one of the few times I listened to what my father had to tell me, <laughs> and it turned out to be good. Good advice. Uh, I was set. I didn't really think I wanted a building inspector's license, but I, I knew I had the requirements. And all you have to do in, well, in New Jersey, it's a, it's a multi-step process. you got to take essentially co a college course and then take some uh, standardized tests. 
but my father knew I knew what I was doing. Um, I had the experience paperwork wise and he said have a backup you know you're doing well in banking and finance which is great but you know things happen he's his uh, company went out of business and he had to you know retool himself to get another job to support his family he goes have a backup plan you have the opportunity you don't need it right now so the pressure's not on go get it while you can in case you need it and boy was that good advice because when the housing bubble burst in 2008 there was hardly any work left for Michael or anybody to do in the mortgage business. With his lifelong practical education and building inspector's license in hand, Plan B became Plan A. So uh, now I'm a building inspector it's in the township of Lakewood. It's the fastest growing town in the state of New Jersey right now, right? It's usually head and head with uh, Jersey City. Um, I got into this about a year after I got out of banking. I saw the opportunity that uh, there was an inspector's uh, job position open. I went and talked to one of the uh, elected officials in town that I knew for lunch, uh, got my application in, uh, got the job because I had the licensing. I've been in, done plenty of construction, knew what the codes were, knew what that was, but this was my first job as a municipal inspector. So you take a couple weeks, you go around with other guys to kind of show you the ropes of what you got to do and how you got to do the paperwork and the process. Um, even my father had come and told me, I go, I hope I understand everything and get this right. I don't miss anything. And my father being the uh, good backup that he is, he goes, trust me, you've forgotten more about construction than any of these guys in this town know about construction. You grew up in it. Indeed, Michael did grow up in it. And because he knew exactly how the various structures were supposed to be built step by step, he could spot the mistakes and potential dangers in houses, sheds, schools, manufacturing plants, warehouses, or any other building under construction in this bustling part of New Jersey. And while he's an employee of the local government, Michael knows who he's really serving. I really protect the consumer at this point because most consumers don't know how your house should be safely built. My goal is to, that roof is never gonna fall on somebody's head or that staircase is never gonna collapse or if there's a fire, the fire protections, you know, people are going to have enough time to get out of the whatever building it is. Um, that's the real, like, bread and butter of construction and inspections is. Am I making it safe enough and clear enough that if something goes down, that whoever the occupant is of this building can get out in time to get to safety? So at the end of the day, I help keep people safe right now. So. And it's an interesting job and the one that I like. If I didn't have to deal with unions and the other personnel side of Working for this township, I'd have the ultimate dream job in my mind and be very happy here for the next 40 years. And when we come back, more of Michael Foline's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we pick up with the story of Michael Tholine, a building inspector in New Jersey who says he has his ultimate dream job, except for the fact that he's forced to deal with an unresponsive union. Here again is Stan with Michael's story. Michael's troubles with a union began the very moment he started working for the local township government in New Jersey. They gave me a membership card. And they said, you have to sign this out. You're part of this AFSCME union. AFSCME is the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the largest union of government workers and retirees in our nation. It is divided into about 3,400 local unions spread across 46 states. And combined, they are a political powerhouse. Since 1990, AFSCME has contributed more than $122 million directly into the political process about 99.4% of which went to Democrats and liberals, and 0.6% of which went to Republicans and conservatives. In states like New Jersey at the time that Michael started this job, joining the union and having the fees automatically deducted from one's paycheck was simply a part of coming on board. But Michael didn't know that. I go, no, I don't want to be. I'm okay. I could, you know, I I got the job talking to the elected officials in this town. If I have an issue, I could go talk to the elected officials in this town. Um, But they're like, no, you have to do it. It's required. So I spent a little time and energy researching why the heck do I have to be part of a union? I don't want to be. My really first dead end with coming up with unions. So it turns out they go, well, you can opt out and we'll collect 85% of your dues. I go, where's this arbitrary number coming from? Why do I got to do that? I don't want to do anything. So the dollar amount was so nominal difference per month. It was like 3 or $4 of difference. And I said, well, if I'm going to have to pay money, I'll pay the extra $3 so I have a vote and I have a voice in this organization. The idea here was that the union had an agreement with a government employer to represent all of the employees. The government could either deduct 100% of the union dues from the employee's paycheck, which was the default option, or if the employee opted out, meaning they did not want to join the union, then the government still deducted 85% of the union fee as a payment to the union for their collective bargaining, contract administration, and other services. Since his only real choice was between paying the union 85% of the fee for no voice or 100% of the fee to have a voice, Michael chose to join the union. Two years later, there's a thing in the township that New Jersey does. If you opt out of the medical insurance that you could get in the town that you're working in or the state or municipality, they'll give you X amount of dollars or X amount of percent of the money that the township would save by not paying for your medical benefits. So for some reason that was changed and it was in the contract, our union contract. The president of the union at the time uh, spoke to a couple of the clerks that brought it to his attention and he literally told them, well, it doesn't affect me. I don't care. I'm not going to do anything about it. I don't want to make any waves. So the girls that were the clerks in town knew me, knew I have a voice, knew I'd participate. So they came and bothered me. So. I did my best to see what I could do to get it fixed. However, they said, well, you're not the representative of this union and we don't have to talk to you about this. So a couple months later, the elections came up. I ran for election of the union. President won. Uh, And the first thing I did within about a week was I got the ordinance changed, which is really a three-week process. I got them to agree to it. They had to introduce it. And the next meeting, they had to uh, codify it. 
but I got them to correct the ordinance to meet back to what the union contract was, so I didn't have to sue them for um, violating our union contract. This particular issue mattered to Michael and other union members like him because some of them could get better medical insurance through their spouse's employers. When the township unilaterally changed this provision in violation of the terms of their contract, Michael saw the opportunity to stand up for employees' rights and ironically became the president of a union that he never really wanted to join in the first place. And then the real fun began, because now he had to actually run the union and represent the interests of his fellow employees. Once I became the union president, I found out there was a bunch of other issues. Taxes weren't being filed correctly. Bookkeeping was marginal at best. Um, there was no real active membership, no tracking of anything. So then I had to go back and um, revigorate and get the union back on track as an active governing body of these members and see what's going on. And I prepared everything for the next winter where we had uh, the first contract negotiation under me as president. Even under the best of circumstances, negotiating a contract between a union and a government employer is complicated. And in theory, that's why the ASME state, national, and international levels exist above the local unions, so that those higher-ups could offer their support to each of the locals. So, yeah, legitimately, uh, any union organization should be researching all the common salaries for the job titles throughout your area. Should be figuring out the actual work performed, any safety that should be done, any training that should possibly be done to make your union members the best for that position so that they're in the best position to get raises. Any other common type of uh, benefits, whether it be medical or dental or insurance that you should be provided. So in theory, they're all researching that. On top of that, um, they're researching the different contracts that are being signed by other like-kinded municipalities or counties around you and figuring out and maintaining a, a log of whatever local laws and or state laws or statutes that should be followed when it comes to contracts and employee rights. Um, I could tell you in Aspen's New Jersey's case, when we asked them to come help us with their contract, they provided zero of that. I asked in May of the year for a contracting uh, that was about to expire that December. I, in May, I started calling and emailing to get help for my negotiations. I was preparing for it locally with my people, and I was trying to get our representatives in our district council to come help us. They ignored me. They literally ignored me until somewhere right around Christmas. They called us up and they said, hey, we're, uh, we're going to come up and have that uh, meeting with the, your township management about your contract. And I go, I don't need it. I was done negotiating that in the beginning of December, and we already have it set up to vote locally to, if, to see if these people approve the contract or not. So they literally ignored us from August to that. And then when they came up, they were completely unprepared. I go, show me your salary stuff. Show me anything else. What did you bring in the door to come help us? Oh, well, we don't have any of that, they tell me. Well, then why are you here? <laughs> what are you bringing to the table? You bring absolutely nothing. They came in and they said, well, we're going to ask for an 8% raise. I go, well, they're not going to give us an 8% raise. Well, we're going to ask for a different type of insurance. I go, I had worked earlier this year with the township to change our insurance, actually, so that there was a dramatic change in how much contribution the employee was paying into it because the overall policy dollar amount is dramatically less. 
So I go, on average, my union members right now are all taking anywhere from 150 to $600 more home in their take-home pay every month than they were before because we had the insurance coverage changed but still maintaining what we required in our contract. And now you want to screw that whole thing up because you want to go fight for an 8% change when in actuality you're not, you're not going to get that because the township doesn't have the money to physically do that. And on the other side of it, you're going to try and force them out of insurance policy we all agreed upon that everyone's happy with because they actually have more take-home pay. So we ended up having a big argument about it. My local voted on our contract, and I eventually had the district council lady who had to sign off on it sign off on it because I had to admit to the fact after showing her all the emails and everything else that she completely failed to do her job. And when we come back, we continue this story. And my goodness, the plot just keeps getting thicker. And when we come back, you aren't going to believe the final part of this because, well, it makes history, this one man's quest for justice and for understanding. It's almost a mystery to him still at this point why things are the way they are. Michael Tholine, his fight against his union, the union he's president of. His story continues here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final part of Michael Tholine's story. He's a building inspector in New Jersey who didn't want to join a union, but he was told he had to pay one anyway. A short two years later, Michael became the president of his local union and kept bumping up against the higher-ups. Here again is Stan with this unexpected union leader's story. Michael and his local union got no help and actually some added trouble from their higher-ups in the union while trying to negotiate their new contract. But that wasn't the only source of friction. Remember how they said that 85% of the union fees were mandatory to pay for collective bargaining and other non-political purposes, while the other 15% that union members paid was for political activity? Well, from day one of working for the township and being forced to pay fees to the union, Michael tried to figure out where those numbers came from. When I first asked, I asked to see the books. I asked to see what the budget was. What are we going to do? They go, they're not providing it to me. They straight up just said that's not going to happen. Uh, you're a temporary employee. After you get your membership, then you could do that. So who really dives into that? I didn't do it. Once I became president, and I still see the, the difference between 85% and the 15% that they're not taking, and I started seeing the books on the state level. I started asking for that. I go, how do we come up with this number? Is this just an arbitrary number? Is it fixed in law that it's 15%? Can I see more books? Can I see some audits? They won't provide it to you. Getting up in the middle of meetings, trying to get this done in president's meetings for the state, they adamantly stop it. They would change the topic or call the order for some other question to try and move the meeting in a different direction. So not only 
did they not ever give you audits? Ask me itself does internal audits, but getting them is impossible. You have to go to their office and you have to sit down and you have to read it at their office. You can't get a copy of it. They can't send you a PDF of it, which is a bunch of crap. So Ask Me New Jersey has these different spreadsheets that they give you at quarterly meetings that you would normally think they were the same thing, like a balance activity, statement of activities, something like that, a current balance account. Ask Me New Jersey, I noticed the two years that I was there trying to push stuff before they came in and got fired by Ask Me International, they would never give you the same report. Quarter one has a statement of activities with all these different line items of how they broke it down. You go quarter two, all the different line items are all, all, all different now. So it went from uh, you know event planning committee to um, something else, the banquet committee at here. So the numbers would never match up. They would never see the same. They went through a lot of trouble to retool all the reports every year or every quarter. So you can't even like compare A to A or B to B by the end of the year. So you have no idea what they're basing these numbers on at all. In theory, you're that 15% is supposed to be the money that they spend on political activities. Almost all of the money asked me ever spent was on political activities. Any event that we went to, any advertising that they sent out, any email communications or newsletters they sent, all had people to vote for or go bang on this person's door or go donate to this person. So in my mind, almost 100% of the money that they ever spent was on political activities. So if you opted out from day one, you should have paid no dues from day one. If hearing of Michael's run-ins with Ask Me makes you think that he's somehow anti-union, that's absolutely not the case. Sure, he has problems with union incompetence and forced political activity, but when it comes to other union functions, Michael is all in. I fully believe in this town that people need to have a collective bargaining agreement with the governing body here. It's The township is not well run as opposed to other towns near nearby. So. I think that many people, including myself, need to have the ability to gain together, protect themselves, their jobs, and their salaries. Um, it, it would be go haywire in a minute. So I definitely see the ability to, you know, there's a strength in numbers and actually associating with people. If you don't have those strength in numbers, the possibly the governing body here would come down, fire people, replace them with other people right away not comply with any of the state laws. I've done many grievances here as the union president that the governing body tried to do stuff that is just completely against employee laws or HIPAA laws or anything else. And if I wasn't here to help them represent themselves or bring in the proper procedures to get stuff fixed, these employees had no idea that they could even defend themselves. So they would have just been fired and walked away and just been pissed off, even though they shouldn't have been able to because it's a law that the township government was just breaking. As just one example of how his local union effectively defended the rights of his members against employer overreach, Michael shares this story about a well-intentioned, but clearly problematic, violation of privacy. One of our union members received a, um, a complaint for termination they wanted to do in regards to the fact that they were taking some medication prescribed by their doctor. The department that they were working in the department had created a policy that any medication whatsoever was to be provided over to internal affairs. And they would make a determination whether or not you can continue on active duty that day in any position within that department. Unfortunately, doesn't the policy was not reviewed by anybody. It wasn't reviewed by the general counsel of the township, wasn't reviewed by the body uh, governing it, wasn't reviewed by management. It was not a well-prepared 
policy. It, there was obviously some good intentions there. You don't want people that are possibly on major medications that can jeopardize their function in the field when somebody else might need them. However, the way they were doing the process was completely complete disregard for HIPAA laws. HIPAA is the federal law that established national standards to protect our individual medical records and personal health information, standards that were simply disregarded by this department head's policy. person receiving the initial information has no reason to receive it. When you transferred it over to somebody, there was no reasonable security of your personal information. When it was obtained at the final location, there was no reasonable expectation for having any security of your personal information. And then the person determining whether or not the medication was going to affect your ability to work properly was not a licensed medical professional, nor did they have any experience in that type of field. So the whole policy on a whole was completely implemented incorrectly. So they were trying to enforce somebody to leave a position because of this policy. I was trying to work with our union at the time to get it correctly fixed, take it to the proper bodies in the state of New Jersey to have the policy overturned. However, the union we were working with at the time, even though it was a HIPAA violation, came back and told us they had no interest in working in on it with us because it wasn't detailed specifically in the contract, which doesn't make any sense. It's an employee's right to expect their HIPAA laws to be respected, whether or not they're an employee or not. So until June of 2018, Michael and his fellow union members were in an odd limbo. On the one hand, they very much wanted a local union to help them negotiate and protect their rights. But on the other hand, they did not want to pay dues to higher levels of district, state, national, or international levels of the ASME union for political activities or other work that they simply saw no value in. The light at the end of the tunnel came in June, when a majority of the Supreme Court decided in the Janus case, a landmark in U.S. labor law, that forcing people who did not really wish to join a union to still pay a fee to the union violated, quote, the free speech rights of non-members by compelling them to subsidize private speech on matters of substantial public concern, end quote. In other words, the Supreme Court said that employees, even government employees, should have a choice in who they associated with. They should have a choice in whether or not they wanted to join or pay fees to a union. To that end, the Janus case also required unions to get prospective members to opt in to actively join a union instead of making membership the default and forcing folks to opt out. With these newfound freedoms, Michael and his fellow union members are now holding elections to cut ties with the higher levels of the ASME union so that they can have a voluntary union that only works on the local issues that they mutually care about. And to Michael, all of this is good not only for the employees and the union members, it can also be good for the unions. I think a Janus is a case to make unions stronger by actually giving people the ability to make a choice themselves. So it's not easy for you to take your local and move away from an international. So you have a problem with your international and you're not in the window of time that you can take your local out. You have no options. You can go and complain at a meeting. I've done that. I've done that from on the state level to the international level. It falls on deaf ears. So if you have a local now that most of the people start dropping out and they're not paying dues, the people in the state or the international can pay attention because they see revenue not coming in the door. So now they can go, what is the true problem here? 
a true problem, the representation we have from the shop stewards or from the state level staff or from the state level, they can make changes. And you're essentially making an immediate vote with your dollar that they'll have to pay attention to. That is allowing union members to have more of an immediate impact upon their union bodies, which are big, massive ships that are not easily turned in the middle of the night, but at least gives us a little bit of a warning light that we can send up to these guys running these organizations that, hey, you need to start turning because we're not going to give you our dollars unless you start making a change. For Our American Stories, I'm Stan Dye. And there you have it. That's Michael Tholine's story. And great job as always, Stan. And what a story it is. Clearly a guy who's not anti-union. Heck, he was the president of his union. But wanted to know where the money was going and what the union was doing with it. And again, not forcing him to be a union member if he didn't like what was happening with the dues or portions of the dues. And again, this turned into a big Supreme Court case but that's what we like doing here on Our American Stories is, well, breaking this down into a story you can all understand. And periodically, individual citizens in this country can be the story. In the Supreme Court case, well, it always involves people and battles and disputes that end up in our nation's highest court. Michael Tholine's story. By the way, to learn more, go to MyPayMySay.com. That's the Mackinac Center and their campaign to help union workers make their own choices when it comes to such matters. Again, mypaymysay.com, and that's the Mackinac Center. This is Our American Stories.